Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The FT. We want to be a good corporate citizen. We want to restore our reputation. It's going to take time. We're going to learn from this accident. We're going to change many things in BP. The industry is going to learn a lot for it. I think the entire Gulf of Mexico energy industry is going to be altered by this accident. That was Bob Dudley talking yesterday in his first interview as the new chief executive of BP. We'll be talking about this story and more in this week's Energy Weekly. I'm Ed Crooks. Alongside BP's new chief executive, we'll be turning our attention to Turkey and the news from the international energy agency, Turkish refiner Tupres, has stepped in to supply Iran refined petroleum after several other international companies have cut off their supplies to the country. After that, we'll be looking at a big shake-up in energy policy in the UK intended to make it easier for companies to invest in the new smart grid. I'm joined to discuss those stories by Javier Blas, the FT's commodities correspondent, and by Fiona Harvey, the FT's environment correspondent. Starting again, as usual, with the BP story, we've had the long-awaited and long-expected news finally happened that Tony Hayward has left the company, being replaced by Bob Dudley. Pretty clear Tony Hayward's position had become untenable because of the storm of protest against him in the United States. He had made himself, as the New York Daily News put it, the most hated and clueless man in America because of the things he said about the oil spill, the way he'd apparently uh, minimised its effect. He talked about it being not very much oil in a big ocean. And of course, notoriously, he said, while explaining that he really wanted to clean the spill up, he'd said, I'd like my life back. The thing about BP is it really wants to keep its business going in the United States. The US is a very important country for it. And as Tony Hayward put it while he was giving his press conference uh, discussing his decision to step down, there was no way BP could have had a future in the US with his him still as chief executive. And that's why they've had to, had to hand over to Bob Dudley, who is conveniently an American and has been already doing a much better job of putting the company's case in the US. Uh, Carl Henrik Svanberg, the chairman of BP, was talking about it, saying it was not because Bob Dudley was an American that he'd been appointed. He was appointed for his excellent qualities, his very good track record, uh, and in particular, his the great success he, that he was seen to have made in running TNK BP, BP's uh, 50% joint venture in Russia. But certainly it didn't at all hurt that Bob Dudley was American when they were making that decision to appoint him. So thinking about the future for BP, Javier, then, as I was saying, that, that it's clear they want to stay in the US, and the US, I think, accounts for almost a third of all their assets. But w- what kind of future do you think they can have? Are they really going to be able to carry on doing business there, or are they going to have to think about other countries as potentially more attractive for future growth? I think that the next few months are going to be crucial. If BP is able to get out of the headlines in the Gulf of Mexico, I think that with some some time, the hostility from uh, US politicians to the company will drop. I mean, they have got already the head of Tony Hayward on their hands. Uh, They have an American running out the company, so I think that's going to improve a lot. Um, We are going to have midterm selection in the US, so probably the focus of the debate is going to move uh, somewhere else by October, November, 
November. And I think that BP will be able to carry on. But for sure, we need to look at where the company could potentially grow if it's not in the U.S. and obviously has many, many other areas. Russia, for sure, is going to be one of the areas. Uh, but then North Africa, where in Libya is already making exploration attempts. And then in, in the West Africa region with Angola, without forgetting some of the Central Asia region, uh, in particular uh, Azerbaijan. So I think that they, they have a future. I don't know what would you think here, but I, I don't think that BP as a company could carry on without having uh, further investment in the, in the U.S. I think that they still need the U.S. for sure. I think that's probably right. I mean, the, the, the crucial thing, it seems to me, is, is they're facing exactly the same problem that all other big Western oil companies are facing, which is it's just really hard to get access to resources these days. That, um, OK, what were they doing in the Gulf of Mexico? They were drilling uh, deeper and more difficult wells than anyone had ever drilled before anywhere on the planet. They were wrestling with these conditions of very high pressure, high temperature, I guess, the lesson of the accident, the, the, the Deepwater Horizon explosion, is that they were pushing the technology beyond the limits, really, of what was possible. Why were they doing that? Because the places where the oil is technically, geologically easier to get at is politically really difficult. So the, the other countries they could have been in, Russia, you talked about where they are, but they've had terrible difficulties in Russia. And then you look around the other places where there's lots of oil, Saudi Arabia, Nigeria, Venezuela, Iran, Iraq. Uh, Kuwait, Mexico, and all of those are close to the international oil companies. And that's exactly the, the problem that you are highlighting. While BP was drilling on the most difficult piece of, of, of land and, and sea on the planet, you could go to Saudi Arabia, drill a thousand meters down in the desert, very easy geology, very easy conditions from from an engineering point of view. But the problem is that the companies do not have access to that. And, and that's just the whole debate about why we are having so much difficulties uh, bringing new supply to the mix of oil and, and uh, oil demand. And, and it's obviously not because we are running out of, of oil, but because all the political problems to get access to the easy places where the oil lies. And Iraq, I, I guess you could say, is like an absolutely classic example of that, where, again, geologically it's very easy, and BP has signed a, a big contract to develop a field in Iraq, but obviously enormous security challenges, and not only that, but actually the commercial terms are pretty terrible for BP as well. BP has been forced to accept a contract that doesn't offer them a huge profit. I was myself in, in northern Iraq a, a few years ago, and it's one of the striking views that I have from when I was visiting uh, northern Iraq, it was that the oil was sweeping to the ground naturally. There were swimming pools in the middle of the grass. That oil was flowing naturally to the to the surface. And, of course, I was talking to the petroleum engineers from a Norwegian oil company who was the first one to drill on the post-Saddam Hussein Iraq. And they were telling me how easy it was to drill, how the geology was a dream, how was, it was looking, as an engineer put it, it was looking as easy as when you are in university and they are giving you these classic example of an oil field. The problem, of course, it was that we were surrounded by an army of 1,500 Peshmerga Kurdi soldiers, that they were making sure that we were protected. And anywhere that I was going on on that oil field, I have to carry a former SIS soldier just protecting me. Uh, and obviously, that's, uh, the oil is very easy to obtain. But as the companies such as BP and others move to the south of Iraq, the complication from the security point of view is going to be just a nightmare. Now, one of the countries we we're just discussing there, again, very richly endowed with resources, is Iran, but again, richly endowed with political problems because of its its nuclear program in particular. And this uh, fascinating story here where we've had, uh, obviously, a lot of companies, a lot of Western companies refusing to sell 
petrol, gasoline to Iran under pressure, great pressure from the United States. And that looked like it was having an effect on Iran, because although um, Iran is, is richly endowed with oil and gas, it doesn't have a lot of refining capacity. And so it has to import a lot of its petrol big problem for Iran, potentially, if no one's going to supply it. And yet we now have a Turkish company of all countries, which is clearly Turkey, ally of the West, strong ally of the United States and so on, coming up and saying we will supply Iran. This is amazing, isn't it? It is, because the United States and, and Washington has been working very hard, mostly on the background, trying to convince governments and companies stop supplying petrol, gasoline to, to Iran. And they have lots of successes, BP, Shell, uh, traders such as Glencore, Trafigura, Beetle, and most recently Total of France, that it was the last company to stop. And, and suddenly, uh, out of the blue, the Turkish national refiner, Tupras has started to supply gasoline to Tehran and that's just the equivalent of sending a, a lifeline uh, economical and political lifeline to, to Tehran. So now we have all the western based companies and some of the companies in the east including Indians and Malaysians stopping to supply Iran and at the same time we have Chinese companies Turkey's and Venezuela sending gasoline to, to Tehran. America's old friend Hugo Chavez. Of course, and that probably is the most uneconomical cargo of gasoline ever shipped because on economical terms, it makes absolutely no sense to send gasoline out of Maracaibo in Venezuela all the way down under the, the Cape of uh, Good Hope in Africa, all the way up through the Strait of Hormuz and, and to, to Iran. Just a huge, very long wires for a cargo of gasoline that is obviously not on economical terms, but is, again, a, a sign of Hugo Chavez sending a lifeline also to, to Tehran. How, how the U.S. is going to deal in particular with Turkey is going to be very interesting. What do we think lies behind the Turkish decision? Of course, tensions between Turkey and Israel have been running very high recently because of the Turkish support for the uh, Gaza raid flotilla and the, the, the Israeli attack on that. remember, more importantly, that Turkey, uh, Ankara and, and Brasilia were behind an attempt to broker a deal with Tehran and the United Nations with the, the nuclear program. And we think that that's part of Brazil and, and Turkey still wanting to have a own engagement. But for sure, uh, Turkey has been trying to play a, 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 of a bridge between the interests of the U.S., where usually uh, Ankara has been an ally, and what is going on in, in the Middle East right now. And also, by the way, it's great business for Tupras because the Iranians now are so desperate to get gasoline that they're willing to pay big dollar. There's no crisis that can't also be turned into an opportunity, isn't it? Absolutely. And oil traders are very, very, very willing to jump onto anything to make money. Indeed. Of all people, oil traders, as you say, are the, going to be the ones who are going to spot those profitable opportunities. Th- Javier, thanks very much for that. Now, Fiona, you've been looking this week at shake-up in UK energy regulation. This is a very dramatic move, isn't it, from Ofgem, the energy regulator. W- what exactly have they done? There's been two things that happened this week. One has been uh, Ofgem in its shake-up of the UK electricity market, and the other is that the government has put out its annual energy statement. To take Ofgem, first of all, what it's doing is really quite revolutionary when you consider the direction of energy regulation in the UK for the past 20 years. For the past 20 years, the focus has been on bringing down the price of electricity uh, to consumers. And that's been a very successful policy. What Ofgem is changing now to do is to allow the price to consumers to rise uh, quite substantially and use that money to invest 
in new forms of energy and in updating the energy network so that we have a, a smart grid. And that's just the way it's got to work, of course. There's a lot of investment needed, a lot of new technology has to be paid for, and that's got to be paid for somehow, and it's exactly. got to be consumers that pay. And the old system, while it was very good at, at uh, making companies very efficient at what they were doing, was not good at uh, giving companies incentives to change what they were doing in a radical way. And, of course, if you want a low-carbon economy, then all of the companies involved in energy supply from, from start to finish have to change the way that they do things. And how does that fit in, then, with broader British government policy about uh, energy and climate? As I said, we, we also had the uh, energy, annual energy statement, um, the first one, uh, from uh, Chris Hewn. What Ofgem's doing does fit into the, the broader policy framework uh, very clearly because uh, there's an understanding in government that you do need a great deal of investment. Uh, the figure that, that people are, are quoting at the moment is about £200 billion in investment in the UK's uh, energy infrastructure between now and 2020 in order to deliver the government uh, targets. Now, a key question on this that uh, I put to Chris Hewn when I interviewed him the other day is whether and how much the price will have to rise to consumers in order to pay for this. Now, Chris Hewn said something rather interesting, actually, because um, he said, well, what you have to think about is the cost in comparison to the price of oil. And the government, with its annual energy statement, put out some calculations showing that actually, despite having to take all this money in, uh, essentially out of the pockets of consumers, that would end up saving consumers money if the price of oil rises not very far above where it is at the moment. So, to, to about how much? I mean, about what, what's, what's a, at the rate of about a hundred dollars a barrel. Right. Beyond is, that, which is you know by no means inconceivable say, in the uh, next uh, ten years. Uh, the next ten years, exactly. Well, it's seventy-five right now. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not sure, Javier. You may know what the forward market says. Don't years think time. that we reach a hundred dollars on the forward market no. right now until about. 2016. We have yeah. to look. I, I think that the, the, the yeah. agreement will be that in the next six to seven years, we will be back to $100, very much depending on what happened with China and so so. But yeah, uh, but yeah it's but a fair it's, assumption it's, to say that at some point in the next, uh, the middle of the decade, we will be there. All this investment in well, energy efficiency, pro- mm-hmm. probably above all, that's the a thing l- that actually saves you money. A lot in energy efficiency, and of course, yeah. in investments in the smart grid also result in energy efficiency. Uh, and then investments in renewables, which uh, start to look very attractive when you've got a a high oil price. Thanks very much for that, Fiona, and thank you also to Javier. Now, this is a bit of a historic moment for me, a bit of a a sad moment, because it's the last Energy Weekly podcast I'll be doing in my job as Energy Editor at the FT. I'm staying out the paper, but I'm moving to a new job in New York where I'll be Industry and Energy Editor. is going to be my formal title, so I won't be disappearing completely from this podcast. I hope I'll still be a regular contributor from New York, but I'll be no longer here in the studio in London. And, in fact, the FT's just announced my replacement as energy editor based here. It's going to be my colleague, Sylvia Pfeiffer. Sylvia, who joins us now. Hello. Hello. Hi. Congratulations on the appointment. Thank you very much. It's a great great job. I found it fascinating, and I'm I'm sure you will too. You've got quite a long experience of writing about energy, haven't you? Um, I have done. For the past two years, I've been doing the defence industry, but prior to that, I did cover um, oil and gas since the late 1990s. Uh, So I have covered BP in the past. I covered its deals, Amica and Arco, uh, the demise of the ENPs. Obviously, they've had a bit of a resurgence recently. So um, I think I'm joining at a fantastic time. Best of luck with the job then. And I'm sure we will be talking many times in this studio covering stories and hopefully I'll be bringing a interesting US perspective as well to energy podcasts in the future. As I say, thanks all very much to all of you for listening over the past months. And uh, I look forward to broadcasting again in the autumn. Energy Weekly was produced by LJ Filatrani. And we'll be back again after a summer break 
uh, and I hope you'll be listening then. So till then, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.